Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Data Centre Exchange. I'm Del Conley, host of a podcast aiming to shine a light on the data centre and digital infrastructure industry. Now, for anybody in the data centre world, you'll be well aware of the high performing nature of the industry. And it's one that continues to evolve at a rapid pace and provides businesses with significant opportunities for growth. But to grow in such circumstances require businesses to have a strong, high performance culture. And I believe my guest today can provide us with a really fascinating insight into their views on how this can be built and to a high degree of success. So as Chief Operating Officer at Vantage Data Centers, they lead operations, security, construction, design, engineering, and IT, and is dedicated to the task of building a culture of operational excellence and constant improvement. Now, I know he gets asked to do a number of these sorts of things, um, so I'm delighted that Chris Yetman, CEO of Vantage Data Centers, has agreed to be on the Data Center Exchange. I know that Chris will give us some insight into his background, but Chris, first and foremost, thank you uh, so much for uh, for coming on. Thanks for having me, Don. I appreciate it. No problem at all. So going back to the start, what's your? can you give us some insight into your distinguished career in the in digital infrastructure world? Sure. Um... Yeah, I'll, I'll even go way back. I went to a Volk Tech High School. Um, left there uh, when I graduated, thinking I was going to be a double E, and uh, and went to university. And as I got there and was studying for my double E, at some point in time, I you know I thought I hated computers and uh, didn't want to have a whole lot to do with them. And then they made me take programming in order to be able to do circuit analysis, and it was a bit like crack. So so I was like, hey, maybe there's something to this software stuff as well. Uh, changed my career around and did computer engineering. So basically I've got a bit of a hardware background and a bit of software um, as I came out of school and so forth. And then uh, because I enjoyed uh, the computers so much in my career, I ended up getting engaged a lot of times as I'll just say a consumer of data centers. So in the individual companies I worked for, uh, frequently, we were doing uh, chip design, for example, at one of the companies I was at. That requires a decent amount of compute. And uh, and those machines that were doing that were kind of like my babies at the time. And so you start to realize, oh, they sit in this room, it's chilled. You know, it's got a lot of network, uh, a lot of power, everything else like that. How does all this stuff work? And, uh, and early in my career, I spent time, I'll just say, uh, setting that up. But then... Um, as I progressed further, I ended up in situations where we were in a company that was growing. And a good example would be uh, Genuity, which was originally BBN Planet, for those who can remember that. And as we're building out across the nation, we actually had a, a hosting product as well. And so that was probably my first introduction to actually getting engaged in building the data centers. So we were building out both data centers and points of presence, gateways, and other things like that for the network. And, you know, you start to get to learn about power and cooling and all the things it takes for care and feeding of those systems as far as that goes. And uh, and what I realized, uh, especially starting there and perhaps other places, is um, I enjoy scale. So it's its own problem. You know, a lot of people can say, oh, I manage a data center, and a lot of data centers can be this the size of a closet. I mean, essentially, it's still a data center, right? But it's uh, or or as a boss of mine from the past would say, "Oh, that's cute. It looks like a data center, but only smaller." And and so you know, you you would go, "Okay, what happens though when you're trying to do tens or hundreds of megawatts or anything else like that?" 
And uh, my experience at Genuity led me to level three. And at level three, we were building a pretty massive network across the country. Uh, and as, uh, as we were doing that, uh, you know, you realize things that are small when you're small are not a big deal. But when you're big, they become a lot of friction. And, uh, and if you don't do something about it, you won't scale, uh, essentially. So, uh, so while at level three, I got a chance to do, again, you know, work with more data centers. Um, but then, uh, you know, after uh, leaving there where I, you know, probably I'll just say had the, the most fun in terms of building things out is I also spent some time at AWS and managed the data center infrastructure for AWS for a while. And, uh, and learned a lot of new things because I used to think, wow, I know what scale looks like. And no, nah, I, <laughs> I didn't know what scale looked like. And then, uh, then suddenly you go, holy crap, this is what scale looks like. And, uh, and it becomes fun and, and challenging. And then, you know, after there, uh, ended up at uh, Vantage Data Centers. And the whole point uh, about uh, coming into Vantage was our CEO was looking for people who already understood scale because the idea was become large enough and successful enough that um, we can start making change before scale came along in order to be more ready for scale, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And um, I've been talking to many people recently about how many of the industry professionals fall into the industry. It's kind of by design an invisible industry to a lot of people. Um, I mean, did you did you think at what age did you sort of get into it into or did you want to get into it? Do you, was there a point where there was a trigger that, or did you fall into it yourself? Yeah, I, and that's a great question. I, I I think you could argue that I fell into it um, because a good portion of my early career when I was engaged in data centers, they were um, they were a fun side project. I know that sounds weird, but since it wasn't our major course of business in many of the places I worked up until Amazon. Um, but prior to that, it was like, okay, they were necessary evil, but I had fun, I, you know? So if we said, oh, we have to put a data center together, I'd be holding my hand up going, sure, I'll, you know, like, I'll go do it. I'll work with the construction guys. We'll put this stuff together. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll make it work. Um, but more often than not, for most of my career, I actually spent time with people who are doing uh, systems administration services, other things like that, that were more software based. And, uh, and as a result, you know, I was engaged with data centers, but didn't, didn't spend, uh, you know, a ton of thought other than building a couple along the way. Yeah. And, uh, and then uh, after going through AWS and then leaving, it, it became funny because I took the role at Vantage and I've had more than one person say, what are you doing? Because <laughs> they were, because they were like, that's, I mean, it's it's in the same industry, but it wasn't what they expected. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what? This is actually kind of fun. I, I'm, you know, so why not enjoy yourself and and uh, you get to see the end product of what you're dealing with, um, you know. And and if you're like me, uh, that's a longer story, perhaps. But I tell people uh, a lot of what we did advantage in the early days was built on my hate list. Um, I was a customer of a lot of data centers and different roles. And there are things that people would do or structures that I would just hate. I'm, I'm, I'm like, this is, it, I hate this. It hurts. It doesn't, I don't like the way it functions. And so I promised myself, if I ever get to do this, uh, I will make sure I don't make those same mistakes. And Vantage was the opportunity to do some of that. 
Yeah, and, and I think we'll talk later about how customer focused you really are in terms of how you how you approach uh, the business. But in terms of your role now as COO of Vantage, um, can you give us a bit of an insight in, I mean, I gave an insight at the start in the bio about how many departments you oversee. So I imagine you do quite a lot, but can you give us a top line overview of, of, of what your day to day looks like, Chris? Sure. Yeah, I think, uh, and what I'd say is, by the way, even though the title hasn't changed, the role has changed quite a bit. And, uh, you know, in the 10 years I've been with the company, and I believe that uh, a lot of that is related to our growth. And so, for example, yeah, I have managed all those teams and, uh, and I'm still responsible. But as we got larger, we grew from what was a small regional provider into a nationwide or North American wide provider. Then suddenly from there, we were able to launch into Europe and quickly became uh, you know, a pretty decent force in Europe. And then um, doing the same thing now in APAC, we're in the middle of that journey as far as that goes. So what changed in the role as a result, though, was because you can't have one person that runs all that, you know, I'll call it directly. And so we became, uh, as we grew, by necessity, more of a matrixed organization. And that's normal. You can't, you know, like everybody would like to be in charge of everything because it just then leaves you feeling like, oh, I've got control of this. I'm going to be great, you know, but it doesn't work that way because eventually it gets too big. And so um, we have always been, and that's the piece I still keep, uh, I'll call it an operations focused company because that's what the customers feel. And so what we did eventually was hire presidents of the business for each region. And then uh, what we created was regional COOs. And so at first, the regional COOs would report to me as we were building up what the business would be doing and how all that's going to work so that you could think of it as almost like an indoctrination where we're saying, this is the vantage way. This is the way we want to do things. And then uh, what we would do is as, the, as those groups matured, they would then spin out and go directly to the presidents of the region. And what will happen is they can dotted line back to me so I can have influence on standards. And that's the bigger thing. So my focus today is a lot more global. And what we're doing as much as possible is laying down uh, common processes and standards that help everyone and that they make us consistent because we're back to you know, customers, which we can talk more about later, but you don't want to have a customer who has a data center, for example, in uh, Arizona and also happens to have one in Berlin have two different experiences. Yeah. And yet they really are two different regions. And I, you know, I don't want to say two different companies, but in a way they are. And, and so essentially, how do you make that feel and look the same as much as possible, even though it's two different cultures, two different parts of the world? And, uh, and that's more where my role sits now at the moment. And so uh, there are centralized teams we need like IT or security. Those remain global. Everything else has been split up into more regional focus with a report back to the global teams or my global position uh, from a perspective of then I can heavily influence what it is that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, uh, it seems like you're doing this uh, such an exciting time in, in your journey. I mean, I, I think I read on LinkedIn already in 2023 that you guys have hired over 175 people globally um, about right. <laughs> so phenomenal phenomenal growth what what's yeah. happening what 
can you just give us a bit of a glimpse into into you guys where you're at at the moment and you know what what's what what's coming in for vantage sure yeah um the amount of growth that we've had has been uh over the last i'd say 24 months has been just absolutely phenomenal it blows my mind because when i joined uh, i think we were 24 people so uh, which is mind blowing to me, you know, to watch how that actually works out. And in honesty, by the way, last year, it was a constraint for us, meaning that it was slowing us down because we couldn't hire fast enough, almost no matter what we did. But like a lot of other things, what that means is you have to invest in the process of hiring and, uh, and the process of recruiting and talent acquisition. And so um, last year, we actually brought in a, a new chief people officer, um, and then went from there where she brought in a uh, talent acquisition uh, vice president. And we specialize basically in understanding how we're going to pull in the right resources and be able to grow those. And so I think comfortably this year will be uh, before any contractors well over 400 new additions into the business uh, for people as far as that goes. And last year, I think we were a bit higher than that. And, uh, yeah. and so if I were to say, you know, what is the rough size of, uh, overall how things are you know when you consider contractors and the rest of that it's probably well up over 2000 at this point wow wow incredible and going so diving into today's sort of topic of of culture and given that the industry does evolve at such a fast pace and and also the the high standards it works to and the and the demanding clients that 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 um I, i'm sure you no doubt have you must have a, a strong culture advantage to be, to sustain that. So on culture, I know it's something you're very passionate about as well. So on culture, how, how do you define that personally, Chris? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I know integrity can be a part of culture, but it's almost like a culture to me is similar to integrity from the perspective of this. Integrity is what you do when no one else is looking. You know, that's uh, you can think of it that way. Culture is your behavior you know, I'll call it like uh, by default, when even when there's, you know, uh, I'll just say no penalty for doing something that you shouldn't have been doing or anything else like that. Like, how do you behave? And um, and so there are certain key tenets that we really focus on that we're looking for when we hire people because it makes a big difference to the service. You know, and, and so, uh, you know, talking about, uh, you know, what that means then is is that I can count on behavior, or we can all count on behavior when strategy fails us. And, and so you need strategy. You've got to have a, a plan. You've got to work the plan, right? So yep. you know, as you work the plan, but no plan is that perfect. And strategy is kind of what takes over when the plan breaks down. And, uh, and so if you have, uh, I'm sorry, uh, culture is what takes over when, when yep. the strategy breaks down. If you have a culture that is high on customer service, as we, you know, as we kind of propose, and it's an easy example. Well, if the customer's in pain and your strategy for addressing that is breaking down, um, everybody in this company has that culture that says, when the customer is in pain, your first job is to take them out of pain. I, I know it sounds silly, but it's, you know, like it might be obvious, but an example of where that behavior changes, it used to work a lot for me in networks because uh, at level three or other places I've been, I've done a lot of network work over the years and in systems as well, as I've mentioned, and well-intentioned engineers 
will watch the network, for example, malfunction. And because they're trying to make sure they fix it and understand it, they'll leave it broken in order to examine the poor behavior. Because they're saying, wait, 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 I'm still troubleshooting. Now, if you knew that rebooting the router would put the network back online, the answer is reboot the router. Your customer's in pain. Stop playing with the network. Do what you think is going to happen to put the service back online and take your customer out of pain. An engineer might look at you and then say, well, now I can't tell you what was broken. And where I would tease them back is to say, that's because you didn't set your environment up to have all the right logs and all the data that you needed to troubleshoot. That's your fault and problem. You're going to continue to work that and make it right. The next time it fails, I still want you to reboot right away. The difference is the next time you will have that data that you were searching for. Well, you know, data centers can be the same way. Maybe we're troubleshooting something and it's with the cooling and you knew that resetting a chiller would actually you know, fix the cooling. The answer is grab your hammer and reset the chiller. Like don't, don't make the customer wallow in pain while you're maybe even trying to do the right thing. So it's not, it's not a case of people not wanting to help. It's just reminding them your number one job is take the customer out of pain. Yeah. And so that's a culture. And so when the, when the, uh, the method of procedure, when the mop breaks down, right, or your EOP breaks down and something's not working right, your focus is still the right focus because you're like, I'm going to, I need to do anything I can to take them out of pain and, and put them back online. Yeah. And is that philosophy and, and just culture generally something that you've always been interested uh, as you've been in business or I think you mentioned, you know, a lot of it is also been shaped by you being the customer and you having that experience yourself. So is that where it's mainly come from or has it always been sort of an interest there anyway? Well, I think there's been an interest there anyways, because I've done a lot of customer service in the past, but because I've also been a customer, um, that is a big piece of how that shapes it, uh, you know, in, including even from something as simple as overhead. Um I've been in previous roles where I was, uh, you know, working with providers uh, like Vantage, but not Vantage, mm -hmm. and they would provide data center services, for example, and we'd be moving at a fast pace or have a project that we would need to do. And you ask somebody, uh, you know, I need power drops on, you know, this power bus. And they make you fill out forms and triplicate and tell you that, you know, they're working with so-and-so. It'll be three weeks before they can get back to you with a date, you know, the rest of that. I, I got work to do, I, and, and it's very flustering when you when you do that. And so, you know, as we actually work with our customers, um, and they ask us for things, we're going to try to make that ask easy, you know, not complicated. Um, trust the customer, you know, and uh, and make it happen. And so, for example, I don't we don't need forms and triplicate. If it's something simple, we're just going to go do it and not. You know, then the faster we can get to it, the happier they are, the more they smile. And uh, and so, you know, and if we're if we're creating a process that makes the customer uh, aggravated, you, you know, I'll give you an example. Actually, it did happen at Vantage in our early days. Well-intentioned people in the security team, not the team we have today, but, you know, very early, uh, were asking the customers to fill out an awful lot of data as they were coming into the data center every time. And uh, and the real issue was with our process. So I just smiled and I said, guess what? The customer doesn't have to fill out anything anymore. If you need that data, you're going to ask them the question and you're going to write it down yourself. 
Now the pain left the customer and went on to Vantage, right? Vantage Security. As soon as that happened, wow, the processes start to change, right? Like they're going, well, this is stupid. Well, yeah, it always was, right? And just you didn't feel the pain. So we're, we're not trying to penalize. What we're saying is experience it like the customer experiences it. When you do that, you're going to want to make a change and, uh, and make that easy for them. And, and I guess the easiest way I could say it is it's my general belief that most people in the industry we're in, because we're REITs, okay, so real estate investment trusts, we are landlords. I get it. Uh, as a result, what I would say is many people in this industry treat their customers like tenants. We don't, okay? We treat them like customers. And there's a big difference, right, between the two. There really is. And, and so they're going to enjoy the time with us much more as a result, you know, and be more productive and feel more comfortable that they're being covered because it's not like a... Uh, you know, we're just a, a landlord that's saying, ah, you don't need that fixed, you know, or you can wait. Yeah. And I know you said a lot of this at the top of the the, the video was almost obvious in some ways, uh, making, you know, looking after the customer and, and really taking their pain away. How, how, how many out there are, are sort of, do you feel following suit or, or is there a kind of lot, a lot of old habits almost in terms of making it difficult for, 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 for certain tasks? Yeah, I think, um, I do think there's still a lot of old habits, uh, you know, in terms of how that works. But, you know, there's other things that key in close with the customer that I definitely think the industry needs to get better at, but that I feel we're focused on. And, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, because you don't want to speak ill of, no. uh, I'll just say others or whatever. But, but what I'd say here is honesty is also another huge thing. So, uh, you know, we work in a complex environment. And I remind people, uh, just as an example, when they go, you know, how big a deal is data centers? And I smile and I go, well, how big a deal is nuclear power? You know, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, and guess what? They get to take nuclear power plants down for maintenance. You ever notice that? But have you ever heard of taking data centers down for maintenance? See, I've never heard of that. Yeah. You know? and, and, uh, and so that's one of the examples I'll give people with, uh, you know, why these things are so important. So where am I going with that? Occasionally, uh, we're all human and we make mistakes. And Vantage is no different. And, you know, I'd like to think we make fewer mistakes. That's what I want to work on. But the fact is, as mistakes get made or your uh, redundancy didn't work the way it was supposed to or some other such thing, you know, we put a lot of energy, not just into the service, but into that honesty and that open communication. And that is hard because it can be pretty embarrassing sometimes, especially if it was human error that caused the problem. But you know what? If, um, if we had an SLA event, and we take the customer and say, this was your event. And we give them a summary. We call it an after action review uh, for people who are familiar with the military. It's a term that they use for doing the equivalent of a postmortem on an event. And so we have a process for that. We walk through the after action review and when we're working with the customer. We're saying, this is the overview of the event as we understand it. And then we actually tell them, this is what we understand is the effect on your business so that they know that we actually care about what it did to them. Uh, but then we go further to say, here's the exact timeline of the entire event. Here are the five whys behind what went actually wrong so we get down to a root cause. And then list off the lessons learned and the actions we're going to take not to repeat this again with owners and you know with deliverables, right? So they got dates and deliverables and owners. See, the thing here is customers are smart. People who think they're not smart are confused. Um, they're smart. 
And, uh, and so what's fun is it's maybe embarrassing for you when you actually have to admit, you know, maybe or, or outline everything that went wrong. But what it does build is trust. Honesty builds trust. And the fact that we actually learn and we were able to, de to definitively say, here's what went wrong, you know, specifically. And then here's why our design or the situation didn't work correctly. Maybe a mop was incorrect. Maybe the design had a flaw, any number of things. These are complicated buildings. And, and so we would work through that with them to show exactly what happened and how we were fixing it. And even share the line diagrams before and after for making change and whatever else. Well, what they started to realize is, hey, guess what? We know data centers, right? They, they know data centers, they know, right? So, so they're, they're, looking build, at, they're building them, I guess. A yeah, lot correct. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to tell people right now, it's like, they go, who's your biggest competitor? My customers are our biggest competitors. Advantage, our biggest competitors are our customers. They are awesome at building data centers. And we're just fortunate that they're doing so much building that they can't do it all. And so because of that, we get to make money and you know have a business and have fun, right? And get paid. It's all, it's all good stuff. But here's the thing. That means they're very good at what they do. And so when, when they look at your AAR and they go, oh, wow, that's detailed. I understand exactly what wrong. And I believe your fix is the right fix. What we did, it was create trust such that, you know, either then or the next time something else might be going wrong, they're not trying to tell us what to do because they understand that we understand just like they do, that we're dedicated just like they are. And, and as a result, our focus on these things is to actually have our own engineers do the majority of work, for example. I want that because I don't actually have to wait for a third party to come in with a four-hour response and have them be habitually late six or eight hours later and I was at N plus one before, and now I'm down to N. Whenever we're down to N, I am just like a nervous person. I'm sitting in my chair, I'm moving around, I'm uncomfortable, right? You know, that's, uh, that's you know, uh, jokingly, we would call those sphincter moments. You know, you are not having a good time because you know that you're one fault away from actually, you know, uh, losing your service. And so we all have those plus ones in our design and so forth. But it's not acceptable to ride on just N for too long of a period of time. You still have to have a sense of urgency when you put that back online. Yeah. And that ethos towards total open book honesty and accountability with, with customers, how much has, has, has that played a part in the growth of Vantage from being a, a regional provider to a global operator that you are today? Yeah, I, I think it's a huge part because I'll give you a good example. We're talking to talk again about uh, global standards. And so um, like others, we haven't grown simply organically. We also don't grow by acquisition all the time. However, we've made some strategic acquisitions. So when you do that, you're buying someone else's data center. You know, Maybe you're buying the whole company. We've done that before. And maybe you're just buying the asset. We've done that before as well. So we've done both. And, uh, and so we're going to buy an asset. And I'm pretty sure that whatever we buy won't be controlled like ours are. That's okay. And I'm, our competitors or the market has done the same thing. But we're going to take the time to actually migrate the controls over to our standard. Now, this is where uh, actually that honesty and transparency comes in handy. It may take a while to do that because that can be pretty complicated. It's a running data center. You don't want to mess things up. But what's awesome is 
We've built interfaces for our customers to give them near real-time access to all the telemetry, the temperature in every probe and every model, uh, every module. The, uh, the humidity is the same. All of the power and the PDUs, the UPSs, inputs, outputs, frequencies, amps, voltages, you name it. And uh, gen starts and stops. Whatever the customer is interested in, we actually have in that telemetry. Well, what's nice is when you have a single approach towards how you do telemetry, when they ask for that data center, let's just say it's in California, and they put the next one, you know, in Milan or in, you know, in Frankfurt or, you know, in Warsaw, when, uh, when they ask for that data, we can give them that electronically in a feed or right, right out of our systems into there. So maybe what we have is, uh, you know, a Kafka queue where we take everything off of the, uh, you know, the SCADA system, because it's really not BMS at that point, it's SCADA. And so we just take all that data down, we push it to the queue, and then we just leave it there waiting for them. And then they just reach in and, and dig it out every so often, right? Uh, could be every five minutes, could be every 15, whatever they like. And uh, and I know I get it, or we get it right, where I get excited is I've actually had customers say to us, this looks to our knock just like one of our data centers. Man, when I hear that, that's like, a, I'll go, oh, Oh, yes, that's good, because that's exactly what we should do. It should feel like one of their own. And, yeah. uh, and to be honest with you, when you get that right, um, it's what why I think people come back, uh, yeah. you know, because they're like, this is just like mine. You know, I mean, we know it's not theirs, right? But, you know, I, I mean, actually, in a way, it's theirs, right? They, they pay the least. It's, our, it's certainly their equipment that's inside it. Um, and they can feel comfortable that we care as much about their existence and their equipment as they do um which is why i you know i'm glad that vantage puts that energy into doing it itself because if i do that with a third party that third party is interested in vantage they're not interested in vantage's customer yeah you know who's interested in vantage's customer vantage so so you know the more that we uh self-control the more that we actually manage those things and the more that we implement those global standards what we get is a very consistent experience to the customer and complete transparency like that. So they don't have to say, did it get hot? They just look and they'll know because we'll, we'll tell them, yeah. you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, yeah, occasionally again, you know, some of those things might be, uh, we feel like, you know, we didn't do our best job. And so we can be a bit embarrassed by that. But when, it, when that happens, we'll, you know, we'll figure out how to fix it and move on. Yeah, I, I guess with 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 that um, with, with what's on the line and the high expectations, how, what do you have certain values in the business that that enable people to feel sort of safe to be so honest and transparent? And you know, if they've made a mistake, to to I mean, do you, do you have values that you that you live by within the business? We do. Um, so you know, and it's a great question. We have a you know a core set of values, and then we also have to remind sometimes people. Um, I'll just say about history. So, you know, customer service is clearly a value. That's that's an easy one. And in fact, actually on customer service, that's become, you know, a, a funny point because early on with our board, especially, they would say, what's the differentiator? And I'd say customer service and they go, everybody says that. And I'm like, yeah, I know they do. The difference is, is we're not kidding. <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's hard because it's difficult to, to prove that. Although we do, you know, um, we do send out... Uh, you know, surveys to our customers and do NPS scores that hopefully, uh, you know, prove that and the honesty. But along with that also, you know, we have uh, values around accountability. And so we explain to people that, you know, you can't get action without that account accountability. We put in 
continuous improvement is a value. And, uh, and so we say that is something that we care about all the time. Safety, even though the safety you were referring to, for example, was, you know, I'll just say more, probably more, uh, you know, emotional safety. And we'll get into that in a second. But physical safety is actually a big deal. We do a ton of construction. And we want everybody who comes to one of our sites, whether they work directly for us or not, and most don't because you usually contract out construction. We want them going home as healthy as they got to work. All the same fingers and toes, right? You know, no big lacerations or anything. So, you know, we take that really serious and we measure it and we make sure that we're okay with it. It becomes, you know, a value. The thing about uh, open communication and honesty when you're working with uh, your employees is sort of like that AAR, they can be a little embarrassing because in it may be actual mistakes that people make. And we've explained, and, and I've actually said this because it's true and it, it remains to be true and I, I don't think it'll ever change. We've never had an AAR become an incident for which we then had to fire somebody, for example. And what people start to realize is eventually when they're in the culture, sometimes the feedback could be honest. And well, it should be honest, I'm sorry, but sometimes it can be a little, um, cutting you know but it wasn't intended to cut someone down it's intended for you to understand exactly what went wrong so that you can actually fix it and do something about it eventually the fear of it ruining your career goes away because people realize that they're not out for you what we're out for is that outstanding service if that makes sense now a great book that kind of goes into that a little bit is uh, radical candor if you ever get a chance to read it and, uh, and so the, the trick here is to be honest. That's uh, more important. And then uh, if you can, you should certainly try to be honest in a kind way. Uh, I'm not always that way. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying I enjoy right, being a, you know, uh, a jerk or something, but I'm just not always as good at it. Fortunately, I work for a CEO who's very good at it. And it reminds me all the time to, of, of like what to aspire to, to say that I can still say the honest thing, but how I say it also matters or helps, right? And uh, and so I'm always trying to think about that and not be mean spirited about it. I guess that come that that sort of lends itself into creating that emotional safe space as well, doesn't it? Correct, and that's yeah, because I think that's yeah. really where a big piece of your your question comes from. And so uh, when people start to see that, even though you know it comes out that Joe did something, right? And you know you you uh, you did something that you shouldn't have done with a breaker. Well, we're going to look at that and go, okay, well, but why, right? And maybe, for example, the instructions weren't clear. All right, well, then, great. Not, I mean, it's not great that it happened, but now, now we know we're going to go fix that mop, and we're going to be much more specific, and we're going to make sure that we actually have a second set of eyes looking at things and whatever else. And so, and, and that's an example, by the way, again, of honesty. This is fun. We share, anytime a customer asks, we share all of our mops with them anytime, anytime they want. And so what's fun is sometimes we get feedback from them and they're going, hey, you kind of missed the boat on this. You have an opportunity here to do this better. And again, like I said earlier, they're smart. Well, well we try not to be ego based. That's an example of like a culture, right, where you're just saying we're not going to let ego take control. So if that's the case and we look at it and we agree, we'll change the mop. And we'll do it globally. Like we'll just we'll be like going, that's a great idea. That's going to avoid any other potential problem. Well, not only is it, you know, the customer's thrilled in multiple ways then because they were heard. Everybody would like to be heard. Uh, it, it's a huge thing. So they go, wow, they really listened and they changed. 
and and there's you know they're um they're, they're having fun with it because they're going see i always you know they know that i'm brilliant because i gave them this idea and they actually implemented it um what's what's fun is most of the time um they are they have that good feedback and we have a um an approach at our company that says we don't care who's right what we care is what's right that's culture okay so what's right is more important than who's right uh, I fight for my ideas and it gets easier for me because as a COO, you know, you have uh, you have the butt weight, right? The position of power for which to then push those out. But it's kind of fun because uh, I'm glad my team, when they see something or they hear something from me and that doesn't make sense, they push back. I laugh because it really what matters is what's right, not the fact that whether I said it or not. And, and so we usually come to better answers as a result. When a customer see us doing that, that's great. Occasionally, a customer will ask us to do something we disagree with. That's a challenge. That's a, that's a real challenge. That's an example of when you know you have to uh, you have to uh, break out your diplomacy. And uh, and in our case, if we really disagree with it, what we explain is, you know, you know how to run data centers, and we're not we're not saying you don't. But guess what? We also know how to run data centers, and we've got some experience with that. <laughs> And, and so, you know, when you're starting to get in towards the gigawatts and stuff like that, like it's, it's, it's fair to say you've got a good experience running data centers. So we're just going to say, you know what, um, we understand your point, but we believe that this is a better path to go. We're going to go that path. And we understand that the SLA is what's, you know, uh, was put there in the first place to protect you. But we'll, we'll communicate with them along the way. We'll tell them as we're doing those things. But, you know, if we did what everybody told us to do, we would be abdicating all of the authority that we need to run our business, but still keeping the responsibility. And that'd be a recipe for disaster. And, and so what you want to do is listen. Frequently, the customer has a point. <laughs> so address the point, which may mean changing them up or whatever else. And uh, and then everyone's happy because what we have is a better procedure as a result. So it's like a steel sharpened steel. That's the yeah. easiest way to look at it. And, yeah. uh, and so what we're doing is steel sharpened steel, and, you know, occasionally it's uh, it's a rub, but, uh, you know, we've never really let it get in the way. Yeah, uh, really interesting that collaboration piece with with customers because we're in very different industries, but we're service industry all the same. And sure. um, we want to when you collaborate with customers, it makes it more fun for everybody involved. It gives more meaning to, to certainly to what we do. And I'm assuming it helps create a better culture internally for you, more enjoyment and almost can create better retention within the business as well. Uh, without a doubt. And, um, you know, there's um, something, you know, when you when you move from an engineer into leadership or management, you know, you start to realize that you have to take your joy in other ways. And so as a leader or as a manager, you take your joy from the accomplishments of the team, not from yourself, you know, and uh, and that was different when I was an engineer. Because when I was an engineer, I was more excited about look what I created, right? Like this, you know, this this Rube, Rube Gold, uh, Goldberg machine is uh, is mine, and it does all sorts of funky stuff, but it's yeah, it's really cool, and you're showing that off. Now it's about you know uh, what the team does. Well, it, it also is about what the what you do with the customer. So what's fun is our teams get joy when the customer interacts with us that way, and we actually get notes from the customers frequently enough where they're like, "Oh man, this was great, thank you." And, uh, and we pa I pass those along because I'm like, how cool is this? I have a customer who's got who's bigger than we are because like again, our customers are our biggest competitors. If they didn't you know if they had the time to build them all, they wouldn't need any of us. 
and, and by the way, people thought our industry was going to go away as a result because they're like, oh, the big, you know, hyperscales will just keep building their own. And the neat part, I said, if that's what's supposed to kill us, you can kill me every day because <laughs> it has done nothing but continue to add to us. And they've got better things to do as well. And so if, if we've gained that trust, they're going to hand us more of that business because they're not worried about it when they hand it to us. And then we're going to have that joy when they come back and go, we love what you just did on securing these systems or networks or, you know, what you just did over here in terms of how you do controls, uh, because it helps us quite a bit. And there was a collaboration. And, uh, and that's how we know that we've got that great relationship. When we're spending that time with the quarterly business reviews, for example, and we get that great feedback. And, you know, and the feedback, by the way, sometimes even says, though, yeah, we love this, but you know what, we really want you to work on this over here. All right, great. Let's go do that. Yeah. You know, and uh, and continue to you know to polish the experience. Yeah, absolutely. No, it sounds it sounds great. And going on the other side of the business, on the supply chain, I know that the the industry across the board um, has challenges with supply chain. How do you approach? How do you approach the supply chain? Is it in the same collaborative way with the same sort of communication teamwork that you have? Um, yeah, certainly very similar. We're getting um, great relationships with a lot of our vendors. Um, and we're, we're happy about that because um, I know part of it's because as we've gotten bigger, our buying power has gotten better. I, you know, I, I get that. And, uh, but really what we're doing is spending more time with them to understand. Um, I almost want to say why they can't do what they uh, can't do. So if you're ordering, you know, chillers or generators or air handlers and big equipment like that, the lead times on these things right now are disgusting. You know, I, I don't even know how else to put it. And, and you know, I almost want to be really pissed off. Uh, and sometimes I might get a little aggravated by it. But um, when you're working with these suppliers, it's like, look, why can't you do what you do? What can you do? Do we have other options? And we get good conversations going. Um, and also, uh, because uh, that honesty part, let me give you an example. We will give them forecasts for where we believe we're going. And there's a lot going on there. And so they start to realize if they're not paying attention, they're going to miss out on all that opportunity. And so having that great relationship allows them to plan and allows us to actually plan as well, because they can start to say, all right, we don't know what that's going to look like yet. And uh, uh, because that building hasn't been fully designed, but what we'll do is we'll make sure we hold manufacturing slots for your schedule, right? That will be in that particular space so that we can bring that in. Um, short of that, or, or, or aside from it, I think, I hate to say it, but we're as bad as the next person. I think the, the biggest thing most of us ended up doing in this industry was just ordering well ahead because we knew those delays were going to be there. Um, that aggravates the snot out of me because it's not really a, a good way to do the business. But if you don't, um, at this point in time, you'd be likely to lose. And so what we're busy trying to do is wait for that to normalize to where we can get the lead times back down a bit and, uh, and not have to tie things up so far in the distance. Um, but some of our better vendors um, are working with us on production lines, for example, which I think is really great when you start to get to that point. And, uh, and we're back to standards. The more we can standardize the base equipment, uh, the more fungibility you have and how you use it. That works yeah. really well in North America it is um, much more difficult in EMEA and, uh, and I don't want to say nightmarish, but it's got its issues in APAC, right? So it gets, gets a little harder uh, with those other regions. Uh, we're fortunate in North America, everything is, uh, you know, 60 Hertz and, 
you know, on a common set of voltages, but in, in other regions where you have lots of other countries, there are differences that make that more of a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Interesting what you said about ordering well ahead. It kind of, I know everyone is doing that, so it creates more of an issue. Correct, because it makes but, the demand but, worse. But you can't yeah. not do it either. Yeah, time. correct. <laughs> I, I, you know, I found I found us working with the you know with our, so the um, procurement team is in my org as well for the global components, and there's quite a bit of that. And uh, you know, I I, I, I it felt horrible at times because I'm like I'm doing the wrong thing for the right reason, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and you know, uh, and, and as we talked about it quite a bit as a business, but we were unwilling to take the risk of somehow solving it another way. And, um, and I know we weren't the only ones because, again, I'm back to our customers will share a decent amount of information with us and you can see them doing the same thing. Yeah, and, yeah absolutely. Uh, and, and yeah, and it, so it became this big log jam uh, in terms of how that went. But uh, what's nice is um, our investors and our board and so forth understand what we're doing. They've been very supportive and, uh, and we've been able to and actually our finance team has been phenomenal in terms of uh, giving us access to the capital that we need. And so we've been able to uh, not let that stop us, I guess. I believe yeah. that there are others who probably cannot grow as quickly because of that access to capital. And that's gotten more expensive, right? <laughs> that's actually, so it's like this, our industry uh, has, has never seen a convergence in an industry like this of both, um, you know, I'll just say supply chain disruption coupled with unparalleled demand where the demand is through the roof and the supply chain is just like this jumbled mess that you know is uh you can't get through and so finding ways to get around that actually is a bit of a competitive edge at that point and uh and some of it is going to be doing all that ordering ahead but some of it is establishing those good relationships with those vendors to um to allow them to plan for you to plan and for both sides to win yeah, absolutely. And also, as you said at the top of the call, with the changes that you've made with uh, the people team and the talent acquisition, um, it's that having that competitive edge on people as well as part of that almost supply chain, because that that's a crucial element to the industry as well. And a lot of the episodes I've been doing on this is, is about the skills gap and the talent shortage and and even the very early years in terms of um, you know, making the data center industry uh, an industry of choice for people that don't know about it or don't understand how the digital infrastructure industry affects them or impacts them on everyday life, really. So it sounds like you've done a lot of work on that people side as well. Um, yeah, a decent amount. And it really does affect a lot of people. They don't, I, I, yeah, I think you're right. A lot of the data center is like one of those quiet, huge industries that a lot of people don't realize, uh, you know, are out there. Uh, I had fun with it when, uh, uh, 10 years ago, you know, when we were starting this, uh, at the time, one of our customers uh, in California was, you know, a company that did gaming and so forth. And I have a daughter who played this game a lot. And so what was fun was, um, she, you know, she came to visit one time and wanted to understand what we did. So I walked her through the data centers, walking through all this, and I'm pointing to this data module. And I go, you know, whenever you play this game, she's like, yeah. I said, it's on a machine. It's in that room. I promise you, because it's their, their entire North American content was, you know, in that one module. And, uh, and she's like, are you kidding? I'm like, no, not kidding at all. You know, so if it goes down, you can blame dad. Um, you know, it turns out how that works, but it's, um, and it's seriously, obviously much more than gaming. When you think about it, if you're, an AWS or an Azure, right? Um, that's your lifeblood, right? And now we're back to why is it important to understand the customer's pain? Yeah. Like, you know, we actually teach our uh, employees, we make this available to them. 
you know, we have a, um, a data center 101 video, right? That kind of walks people through the, in th that. So this is what's funny is we can talk a lot about data centers, but you know what we also talk about is virtual machines. We do that. Now, we don't run VMs for our customers. We don't run any machines for our customers. The only machine we were running is for our business and for managing the data centers. The customers run their own machines. But when your employees understand that what used to be a rack that was um, 48U with a half, a 6U for um, switches on the top and 41U uh, servers running down that, you think that's 40 machines. Uh-uh, right? Each machine can have 100 VMs and they can be all doing these different things. And so what you really have is 40, 000, um, you know, 4,000 machines, right, in that one rack. So when you lose the rack, the blast radius is much bigger than what people actually understand. And so teaching your employees the, the, the uh, multiplier of what the effect is of having these VMs, which are part and partial to any big data center now, starts to understand the amount of pain you're inflicting on the customer when you have a lineup of racks, for example, go down because you lost power. Yeah. And, um, and, and, they, and so I'm doing the math with them. And now I'm starting to talk tens of thousands of virtual machines. And, and it's fun because like people in the class are like, <gasps> and I'm like, yeah, it hurts. Like, so, so don't, don't screw it up. Right. Like this is, this is, this is why A power and B power are so important. This is why your plus one is so important. This is why, you know, it's like we have some hard and fast rules. An untested redundancy is not redundant. That's culture. And we explained yeah. to us like, you're going to test that redundancy on a regular basis. I don't care if you hate me for it, because one day it's going to fail and we're all going to celebrate. Yeah. And so, so there's an example of like cultural difference. If we do preventative maintenance and we're testing a redundancy and it fails, nobody gets angry. I'm excited. Yeah. Because it failed in a controlled fashion that we get to fix before hosing up the customer. And then we make it right. And then I can go sleep at night because I know that if the power actually goes down, the, the machinery will do the right thing. So you can't not test all of those redundancies on a regular basis. We do a ton of that and we have to work with the customers to do it and so forth. But that becomes so critical to uh, elevating your service so that you know it's going to uh, be there when the failures occur. And, and so uh, I, we tell them, be happy. Like when they come back later on, they go, oh man, this ATS was burnt. I'm like, you know, and they're upset or something. I'm like, no, dude, that's awesome. Because you get to fix it now. Yeah. And the power, the power is still up. And next week the power could go down and guess what's going to happen? That ATS is going to work. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome that you found that. And, and it's so much on the line. And, and I think, um, you know, it, it's, I think it's important that we, we educate people as to just how much of an impact they have so it becomes an industry of, of choice and the skills gap is only going to get worse in my opinion um and there's certainly not enough people to go around plus the industry is fighting against other really cool industries also um for for their talent so yeah super important to, to keep on educating people um yeah and they feel it by the way like when we're interviewing people um we do something called cvbi so it's competency-based behavioral interviewing um, a, a, there is a bunch of people who do it, but there's a lot more who don't. Um, I would suggest they, they do it. Uh, the, the trick here is to make sure that people have the right initial technical skills. 
but then we're spending more time on the interviews on culture than anything. Yeah. And, and we're saying, so, you know, are they, you know, uh, by the time you're in your mid twenties, I usually can't fix you at that point. You're baked. Your parents either did their job or they didn't, or you decided not to listen to them. How do you teach someone work ethic? Mm. How do you teach someone integrity? Yeah. Right. Like, and I know that those are some big basic ones, but really you can't necessarily fix that. Now you can teach them about the equipment, you know, um, and you and people do learn even as adults. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but if you find uh, those right people when they're interviewing, they might interview with four other people uh, to come into the company, or if it's a higher level job, six or eight. And uh, but the fun part is they start to feel the culture even during the interviews. And what's neat is the people who are doing the interviewing, when uh, when someone asks them a question, you know, the, the one who we're interviewing somebody, but they get a chance to ask questions back. And they'll ask almost any of our uh, employees, well, how do you like working here, whatever. And frequently they're gushing because they're just like, oh man, this is great. I get trusted, people let me do these things. I can see the effect of what I do. I work with other smart people who are not jerks. You know, all those things uh, are such an awesome culture and welcoming that people will feel like they want it, they get drawn in. And what's neat is um, you want every person who interviews with you to want that job. Uh, even though you're not necessarily going to ask everyone for that job. Just like when I'm interviewing, if, when I've, if I've left a company and I'm interviewing someplace else, I want offers everywhere I go. Absolutely. I'm not going to take every offer, right? But I, what I want is, you know, I want them to love me and go, yes, Chris, here, here's an offer, right? And, um, and I've turned down some offers in the past. It's really awkward when you do that because you're like, oh, man, that's a pretty good offer, but it's not exactly what I wanted. And uh, that's awkward, you know? Well, uh, you know, I'd rather that we show how good we are, have people feel it, want to come work here. Some of them may not make it, but when they, when they don't make it, for example, I want them thinking, well, I hope another opportunity comes back that I'm better for. Yeah. And yeah. frequently, that, by the way, that has happened with us more than once. And it's a joy, you know, where sometimes we're just like going, yeah, you know what, they're good, but it's not... It's not what we need for this particular role, but they're the right type of person. And we may even call them back, right? Sometimes they just apply for another job somewhere down the line, or we'll just go, you know what? You know, we interviewed Susan a while back on whatever that was, and man, she'd be perfect for this, right? So I'm, I'm not bashful. I'll call someone up like that and go, you know, I know that didn't work out, but we knew we could feel that you were the right culture and everything else like that. We now have this. Is that of interest? And, and, and it happens because that culture just draws them in because they go, I want to be someplace where I can feel that I'm making that difference, where I know that I'm being heard, that, you know, I'm having a good time like that. I'm working with people I respect. And, uh, and the good stuff comes out from that. You know, it's not just about being the best engineer. It's not about being, you know, the, 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 the best with a spreadsheet for finance or something else like that. Those things help. They're, you know, they're absolutely great. And we have some great engineers as a result. Um, but, you know, I'm more excited when they get excited about finding uh, ways around different problems. And they're excited to do it because they really want to see the customer um, succeed, right? They get like, yeah. oh, we give them the customer challenge. We just give it right to them. We go, this is what the customer wants to do, but I have no idea how to get there. And, and, and you, know, you know, they run away for a while, right? And then all of a sudden they come back and they got, you know, like they're holding something in front of them. Look at this, look at this. I'm like, oh, look at it. They go, man, that's fantastic. You know, and we, we bring it back to the customer. The customer's like, yeah, that looks great. Okay, great. Let's go do it. 
Yeah. Uh, interesting in what you said about the interview process there, because there's kind of a, a lot of talk in the in the recruitment circles that it, it's unhealthy to have so many stages of interviews. And I've never subscribed to that thought process because me especially especially when look, it has to be slick it has to be it has to be an um uh, an enjoyable process an engaging process for everybody involved as particularly if you're attracting talent but you also need to give you also need to give them a good look at the business and have a number of different touch points in my opinion it's not unhealthy to have four five six stages if they're enjoyable stages if they're engaging if they're slick and you know that that's 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 absolutely cool with me yeah i'm um i don't think oh man our interview process takes a lot of energy no doubt and it even burns energy down for the interviewee um but i'm going to smile and go first off it's their career if they take it serious they shouldn't mind putting the investment in we put the investment in as well which means by the way we make fewer mistakes nobody's perfect but you know what the last thing I want to think about it again, especially because most people you hire are still employed. I mean, yes, we do hire some people who are between jobs or whatever else, but a lot of them, right? Well, just, I don't know what the number might be, but it's more than 80%, you know, are currently still employed. Mm. And imagine the travesty that it is that if you didn't do this correctly and you brought the wrong person in, all right, let's start with that person. Because this won't last. And that means you've just ruined, you know, well, I don't want to say ruined, but you just made them miserable. Okay. And they're now worried because, it, you know, they're going to have to go out and look for another role or anything else like that. They're incredibly unhappy, not sleeping well. Who knows? Maybe they're drinking. God knows. I don't know. You know I'm just having some fun with it. But like, you know, it is a miserable experience. Well, as a manager, it's miserable too, because now you have to put all this energy in. And so one of the things that we remind people culturally is, this extra energy up front pays for itself. People don't always see it, but it absolutely pays for itself. So I'd rather put through like a typical director and above type of candidate for us easily goes through six 45 minute to an hour interviews. I don't feel the least bit guilty because I don't want to pull the trigger on the wrong person. I, you know, and when they come on board, we have an expectation of what we should be able to get and we get it right most of the time. And I, and, and I have fun with that, where we just say to people, you know, what's worse than doing all this hiring uh, work that we do? Firing people. That's harder. No manager I know likes to do that. It is the worst part of your job, right? Letting someone go for performance. Uh, you get physically kind of ill over it and stuff like that because you know it hurts. And, and weaker managers avoid that. Even strong managers avoid it because it's distasteful. And, and, and so... I've made those mistakes. You know, I may still make those mistakes in the future. I count on the fact that my peers and, and my, uh, my direct manager, our CEO, would call me out. I won't like it, but I'm glad that they do, right? If they go, hey, Yeti, you haven't actually, you know, you're letting this uh, slide and you shouldn't. You know, they're probably right. And, and so um, it is hard to get that right with your team and do that as a manager. So if you want to avoid that heartache, hire correctly. Yeah. How do you do that? The answer is a lot more interviewing, a lot more in-depth, competency-based, right? Where, where you then say, I know I've got what I want here. And that and, and that employee that you're uh, trying to bring in, you know, also is really interviewing the company. 
it, it does work both ways. And so they get a much better view as to what we're about. And most of them then look forward to being here, you know, as a result, it's huge. Yeah, I couldn't I, agree more. Yeah, I can, we can teach people to, uh, you know, to fix an air handler or a chiller or a UPS. I mean, we actually fix our own UPSs, the majority of them. So we become, you know, we send our, our engineers out, they become factory certified and they actually do the work. How awesome is that? You know, so like we can teach them those things, you know, but what's harder for me to teach them is to not be a jerk or, um, or to tell the customer, like, uh, you know, I mean, I'll say it, our customers, some of them are sure will listen to this, but we'll have some fun. One of our silly sayings internally is don't scare the kids. You know, well, you know, why do we say that? Well, you know, when you have a problem, when we talk about those AARs, you're never going to lie. We're back to that honesty part, but how you say it matters. Yeah. And so one of the things that we do is we spend time teaching people how to say it. There's no lie, right? But instead of saying, oh my God, we almost melted the data center down, right? What you have to say is the temperature got to 104 degrees. You know, that's, you're still saying the truth. You're still saying the same thing. One is factual, right? And it's based on, uh, you know, data, right? And accuracy. And it's absolutely truthful. The others is hyperbole, right? Yeah. Where you just, you know, you're going a bit nuts. And you're scaring the kids, you know, because you're over there going, it was a monster, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, it's not, you know, so, so teaching people to take that emotion out of it, be a little more clinical, absolutely tell the truth, talk about again, what did you learn <laughs> and, and, and what you're going to do to fix it. Pretty soon the customers are like, oh, wow, this is uh, so much easier to deal with because uh, we're back to it. it engenders trust because they know we weren't kidding or we weren't hiding Right. We didn't we didn't go, oh, well, we didn't get that temperature. No, we, we got all the readings. Here they are. You know, we might be embarrassed to have you read them. But, um, you know, and, and the good news is because of all the training and because of people's attitude to keep things um, correct and to keep the customer out of pain, I would argue that we probably have, you know, uh, fewer events as a result. I can't say that for sure, to be honest with you, because um, we're not focused on our competitors. Seriously, we're not. We're focused on our customers. Yeah, I, you know, I wish my competitors all the best. Great, I, I, I also don't care what they do. You know, what we care about, you know, advantage is what is that customer back to? What is that customer experience? You know, yeah. uh, and um, you know, we're going to continue to get all this wonderful business as a result because they're cared for, they're getting great service, they're communicated with, we're open and honest, and uh, and we kind of feel like one of them as a result, yeah. and that's exactly what you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like the energy is being spent in the right areas. That's for sure. Um, uh, yeah, I think so. You know, and, it, and it's funny because again, it's cultural. This yeah, absolutely. About, yeah, it isn't about how well you handle a torch. You know, if you're trying to braise, uh, if you're trying to braise pipe for a chiller, you know, yes, do we need people to do that? Absolutely, right. But um, but really, what's going to make the difference for our success overall is going to be how that customer interface works out. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, my last question on culture is how do you think that may evolve within your business? If at all, um, is it just about maintaining that high standard, that customer focus as you grow or will it evolve as, as, as the business does? Well, I think it will, but the evolutions will be slow. It's more about maintaining. So I'll give you an example of maybe evolve. Um, safety was not one of our original, uh, in all honesty, uh, core values. It's not that we were unsafe, right? We just never said it and we never focused on it. 
And so it's now in our core values, right? So that's an example of an evolution. Um, we always felt we were being good about how we handle uh, diversity, right? So exclusivity, diverse, uh, inclus inclusivity, I'm sorry, not exclusivity. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but diversity and inclusivity, right? Um, were, were important to us. We're not saying they weren't, but you know what? They weren't originally in the core values. And so we're like, you know what? We're gonna add those to the core values so that we are crystal clear about what's important to us. That's evolution and they will evolve, but I don't think they're going to evolve a lot because the majority of core values are the same ones we created 10 years ago, the vast majority, and with a few you know, changes and, and additions and clarifications. What's difficult with all this growth, though, is I tell people culture is a bit like uh, a nice soup. You know, if you've been working on the soup, um, you've been putting in spices, you've been putting in stock like carrots and potatoes and onions and you know other things like that. Maybe it's chicken, maybe it's beef, whatever. And then, you know, but as you're working the soup down, let's just say you know you're going to continue to need more soup because you're serving up lots of it. You can just add more water to it and add more carrots and onions and this and that, and you'll bring it right back to where it was. This was our existence for about the last, uh, the, our first, let's just say eight years, you know, and then over the last couple of years, because of because of what we did and because of that culture, because we've become so successful, um, we suddenly walked up to that pot of soup and we added 500 gallons of water in it because that's all the new employees coming in and they don't have the benefit of having been steeped in that soup. So pretty soon we're throwing all sorts of fresh water in there. And actually some of the water may have bones in it. And, you know, maybe instead of a, you know, stock, you suddenly go, what's this roll doing in my soup? It's not supposed to be in the soup. It's supposed to be aside the soup. Well, that's because, you know, uh, what happened was this injection of all this new talent and these new people were hiring the right people, but they haven't had a chance to really be immersed in that, in that culture. So our challenge actually is how do we keep that culture as we grow quickly? And uh, what we're doing with that, with our HR department right now, they've been fantastic, is to say, uh, how, you know, how do we onboard new employees? How do we introduce them to the culture? How do we actually uh, you know, use both presentations, videos, other things like that, to then say to them, what does it mean to be customer service centric you know, and, and spend time doing that? What do we mean when we're saying security is a top priority so that they actually can appreciate why? And, uh, and as they learn that, they become uh, part of the soup, right? They're, yeah. you know, suddenly, you know, suddenly we're getting all the right ingredients. We're getting all the yeah. right number of carrots and we're getting more, you know, beef stock and some more bullion in there and whatever else. And, and so our biggest challenge has been our success has stressed the ability to keep the culture. Honestly, I don't think we're going to lose it. I'm just saying, you know, it's been a heck of a challenge because we yeah. realize I'm over there going, no, we got culture and a couple of new people are like, I don't feel the culture. Ah, oh, man, I get nervous. Right now we're back to good communication that, you know, they're, they're giving you an honest answer and you go, all right, we got work to do. We got, you know, we got to, we got to rub some bullion on this guy, right? Because I want to make sure that they actually understand and, and feel that culture and are steeped in it. So again, when strategy uh, hits a road bump, culture, uh, you know, takes you through that. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's great. Uh, I've got Two questions for you, Chris, to end this. And I, I, I just honestly, I could speak to you for a lot longer than the hour that you've kindly given to us. So I really do appreciate your time. Fascinating insights, both into your mindset, the culture of Vantage. Um, yeah, it's been it's been super stuff. So I really do appreciate it. Last two questions for me is um, what do you enjoy enjoy the most about the 
data center industry? Um, I would say for myself personally, it's, um, it's the scale and demand um, mm -hmm. that, you know, when working in the past, for example, with large networks with level three or more computers than you know what to do with, with AWS or whatever else, um, scale creates its own set of unique problems. And I really enjoy uh, saying, well, how do you solve that, right? It's, it's a different puzzle. We can all talk about what it means to cool a data center. I get that. Try doing that when, you know, when the data center building is, you know, more than 50 megawatts, I guess, or whatever else, or when your density, um, you know, is, um, is greater than, say, 400 watts a square foot or whatever else. The dynamics of what that is changes. And I find that, you know, interesting and enjoyable from a, a puzzle, if you think of it that way, right, a puzzle perspective. Um, the, uh, you know, the other thing that I think we enjoy the most, or at least I do, is seriously, by the way, making those customers happy. You, we're back to, if you're a leader, you want, you know, you get your joy from watching your team accomplish. And you still get that. But, uh, but for me, I'm like, I am so excited when the customer is pumped. It sounds yeah. weird, but, like, you know, and, and maybe mostly because I had those poor experiences in my past that you go, oh, I, I uh, oh, I, you know, I, I'm trying to think of how I want to put this. Like, you know, what if your parents were horrible about something and you say, I'm never going to do that again. And then someday later when you have kids, you realize that you actually got it right, right? You fixed that. And, uh, you know, I get that same joy when we work with customers and they're happy, right? Um, we're thrilled because we're just like, going, oh man, that's like, that's the good stuff. And, uh, and the, the, in the data center industry, there's a lot of opportunity to do that because uh, what people don't realize is the growth has not slowed down. And Moore's law is still alive, even if he's, God bless him, is not, because I know he passed away recently, right? But, but um, it might be a little slower. So it used to be a doubling every year, then it was a doubling 18 months. Now it's maybe two years. But you know what that really means? Is that in the next couple of years, everything we've built up to now, we're going to do again. What a great industry to be in. It's, I, I, it's I, phenomenal. I oh, I, like... I seriously wouldn't be anywhere else. I don't even know, you know, I, I you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I get calls occasionally from people, whatever else. And they're like, would this be interesting to you? No, no, I, you know, no, I'm having way too much fun. I enjoy the people I work with and I'm in an industry where you can't possibly do it all. Like there's, um, and I don't see that slowing down because the advent of uh, AI, just as an example, will change the shape of what we do. It will not change the overall size and scope, but will continue to get bigger. The difference with AI is that if you're creating a learning model, um, you need a crap ton more, um, you know, hyperscaled clusters, right? So, so of computers, and they want to take the time that it takes now to do a, a model like a ChatGPT. You know, ChatGPT three and a half took thirty-one days to build. You know, uh, let's be serious. The industry's going to want to build that in three hours someday, right? I'm, I know it can't be done today, but, you know, and what that means is we're going to actually have even larger footprints of data centers. The difference is if the model fails while you're building it, for example, in AI, it's not actually online at that point. It's just learning. Now, the in, when you create those inferences in those models, those are then sent out to run. Those data centers are still critical and they also have to have the availability zones. They have to have your plus ones and the rest of that. But we're gonna see an industry that while that may not change its growth trajectory much, 
we're going to see these much huger clusters of you know hyperscale clusters of creating these inferences but maybe for example i'm not saying they will for sure or not but maybe they don't even want a ups maybe they don't even you know because if you if you build it big enough to lower the amount of time it takes to build an inference right for ai then you can build it again if it got disrupted especially if you were down to the number of hours right or even less than a day so so you can build a lower cost data center running at much higher densities that basically bursts into flames, so to speak, and just you know burns through a problem and then calms back down again and waits for the next problem. Whereas everything that we build today is running not only 24 by seven, but it's busy 24 by seven and it's constant. So AI is gonna do this and then this, this and then this, and it's just gonna keep pulsing like that. And, and they're gonna make bigger and bigger workloads in order to be able to make better and better models. And, uh, and I'm excited about that because I think to myself, how cool is that? We get we get even you know more opportunity to build out, then at the same time, it's not the same thing. And that's when you're gonna to start to see, um, everybody talks about water to the chip now or immersion. You know The reason why is because these things do burn so hot uh, in order to be able to accomplish all that work in that period of time. And, and, uh, and this just adds to the fun for uh, being in the industry that we're in. No, it's exhilarating, it's exciting. And I wanna keep on spreading the word through podcasts like this and just to make sure that people see it as an industry of choice where their careers can go in all sorts of directions and enjoy the journey whilst they uh whilst their careers develop um you said you wouldn't want to be in any other industry but I'm gonna have to take you there now if you wasn't in it what would you be doing oh man that's the last question that's a hard one because uh Yeah, I think if, um, well, I don't know if it still counts as the same industry, right? So I think about the data centers uh, as, you know, a service that we put out and we lease to our customers. That's the industry. Um, I think it'd still be technology for me, though. So, uh, you know, if I wasn't focused on running a data center, um, at this point in my life, seriously, I'd rather get into AI. I am so... Um, I'm like, I'm pushing my team on it now and doing that left and right. And I know people can get caught up in a... Um, a fever about a newer technology like this, but I'm sorry, it's a bit mind blowing. And I'm not talking about, let's look at a great example. You know, people are trying to get gotcha moments with AIs. And so they're making the AI fall in love with them, tell them to leave their wife, right? You've read about all these different things. Yeah. You're asking it the wrong question. See, this isn't about AI and machine learning for me is not about the intelligence of the machine at that point. It's what you can do with it as a tool. And so uh, if you're a developer and you're not learning to embrace AI, you're about to be um, put out. What you really want to do is work with it as a partner. It's almost like having a coding partner at that point. It's going to help you find bugs. It's going to help you. You know, if you are a creator, let's have some more fun with that, like a writer or a painter. You know what the hardest thing is to face is? A blank page. Where do you start? Okay. And, and so if you turn to a machine learned, uh, you know, instance like ChatGPT4 and you say, you know, I like to do Python, you know, or whatever it is that you're choosing, I have this kind of a problem. Here are my libraries that I normally work with. Can you help me assemble uh, you know, a subroutine to do this particular task? It's going to give you one and it likely will work, <laughs> like, which is really cool. And then what you're going to, I'm not saying it, you, you, you've been put on a business. What I'm saying is your starting point is no longer a blank page. 
what you're, you know, so, so what you're doing is you're vaulting or you're accelerating forward all that work. And you still get to spend more time being creative than you do actually with the drudgery of making sure you put a semicolon at the end of the, you know, the end of the command line. And, and, and so there are tools already that people have been doing this with for some time, but they really weren't as intelligent or as, you know, as good as, um, you know, the current um, new versions of AI that are coming out. How exciting is that is to think that you can accelerate your creativity which is scary because by the way, all that's going to do is drive more demand, which means we're going to build more data centers. So if like, if I'm not building them, I'd probably be one on the, on the side that consumes them. Yeah. If that makes sense. Right. Uh, you know, from that perspective, as opposed to, you know, going out and taking a job, you know, walking dogs or something. I don't know. Yeah. No, excellent. Well, look, Chris, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. Um, you've given us a, a fascinating, a really good insight into, um, into your mindset and into what all the cool stuff that you're, that you're doing at Vantage Data Centers. And uh, I, I personally wish you and Vantage all the very best um, for the rest of the year. I'll be watching certainly um, from the sidelines uh, the journey that you're taking, undertaking. And um, yeah, thanks for so much for coming on the Data Center Exchange. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dylan. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it very much. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much. All right, uh, hi, everyone.